Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 40. The Screwtape Letters, Letter Number 20, Matchmaker. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. Andrew Lazo, it has been a while. It has been too long. Are you doing well? (laughs) I'm doing very well. What have you been up to? Well, we have returned uh, from Florida back to Virginia. I had my first week of classes uh, just last week. Finishing up my Inklings class, I've got a paper to write, and then I've started my uh, my Lewis class at Northwind Seminary. So we are in full swing with lots of seminary and and lots of moving. And then Krista and I did this wonderful reorganization. We have we brought 150 boxes of books with us to Virginia, um, and we realized we're only here for another year and a half. And there are lots of these books that we are not going to read before between now and then. <laughs> so we have been in the process of boxing up uh, our books and making making better space. So uh, I've got a I've got the living room to myself for a longer desk. Christian Kristen has uh, the study, which we call spare oom. We <laughs> even have a sign, uh, and I've got a nice iconostasis. Uh, on one side, and then a bunch of my pictures of Lewis, including your beautiful drawing that you had made for me for Christmas. So, so just settling in to uh, to the new the new regime. Wonderful. Well, in my Lewis related news, I read uh, a new Lewis book, or at least new to me for the first time. A couple of weeks ago, on a Saturday morning, I woke up crazy early, and my wife was still sound asleep, so I went to make myself a cup of tea, and I curled up with A Grief Observed. Not quite sure what motivated me to read it, but I knew I'd been putting this one off for a while, and I decided it was time. And it's a really short book. I polished it off before she woke up. Hmm. It's a kind of brutal way to start your weekend, though. I will just say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what did you think? It's a very difficult book to describe. Mm-hmm. because it's not like it's a theodicy. It's not like it's simply giving a defense for pain. you, you mm-hmm. got a problem of pain for that. This is really just a very vivid description of what it feels like when you've been gut-punched, when you've lost someone that you really care about and you wish that they were here. Mm-hmm. For our listeners who haven't read A Grief Observed yet, this was kind of Lewis's six-month journal of grief after the death of Joy Davidman. Um, and I've seen not these notebooks, but some of his notebooks, and he had many of them. And so I don't believe he originally meant it for publication. It was just kind of uh, therapy, I think, for him mm. to get his words uh, his words out. Um, he said earlier, early in his life, he said to Arthur that that ink can cover over a great deal of pain. Um, and I think that this was some of that, and uh, and he published it. Although I think that it's oddly appropriate that you'd read it now, because the last time I read it was early in my marriage, and although he's regretting the loss of Joy Davidman, in some ways it's kind of a handbook on how to love a wife, how to cherish a wife. That's a really good point. Hmm. And there's something also quite bittersweet in it, because you're reading about Lewis at the other end of marriage mm-hmm. after his wife has gone. Mm-hmm. And you you sense his longing and his desire to be with his wife. And as you say, I'm at the beginning of my marriage, so it's a, 
yeah, it's it's just a very strange book to read now. I'm a weird person. Okay. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> well, and it's striking to me to realize that I um I was I've now have been married longer than Lewis had. Um, I got married in 56, and then he married her again officially in 57, and she was dead by the middle of 1960. And so this kind of wrenching away, he had said to, to Neville Coghill at one point that he was surprised to have found in his 60s the happiness that had passed him by uh, in, his, in his 20s. And so now this is him with all that all that, uh, that kind of ripped away from him. But how well he loved her, I think, um, for me, was uh, was reading Grief Observer was great advice uh, on how to love somebody before they're gone. I'd agree. And I'd also say it speaks very eloquently to what Lewis also said in The Four Loves with his supposed disagreement with St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. He at least interpreted him as arguing, if you love things, your heart is going to be broken, so only love God and you'll never be disappointed. <laughs> he says, no, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, And I think in A Grief Observed, you see somebody who is hurting, but still wouldn't have chosen differently. Yes, absolutely. No, um, what a what a treasure of a book. I'm glad that you had a chance to read that. What else are you reading? I am also working through The Silmarillion this year, and I am now officially halfway through. Okay. I think I will probably do an episode on how to read The Silmarillion, because <laughs> there have been some things that I've been doing that have really been helping. And uh, I kind of want to help anybody else that wants to try and tackle, even if it's not the Silmarillion, at least a book like it, Mm -hmm. uh, because I think there are harder and easier ways to go through this. Yeah. I tried not to keep track of everything. (laughs) I just kind of let the words come over me and experience it as a a joyride, and that helped. Yes, I think that does help. Otherwise, your brain will explode. (laughs) (laughs) Surely. Uh, One other thing that's going on at the moment, in the Byzantine Church, we have a real run-up to Lent. Mm -hmm. We have the same readings in the weeks preceding the beginning of Lent. So as soon as you start hearing uh, the uh, reading about Zacchaeus, the publican and the Pharisee, today we had the Last Judgment, you know that Lent isn't too far away. Mm -hmm. And we're recording this on a Sunday, and our priest reminded us that we'll soon be doing the canon of St. Andrew. Mm. And I wondered, since he's your namesake, have you ever come across that? No, not yet. Tell me about it. Uh, It's really cool. It's a dialogue between St. Andrew and his soul. So it's a prayer service, and the text of the service is St. Andrew talking to his soul. And the theme is all about an exhortation to change one's life, to reflect upon one's own shortcomings and sinfulness, Mm. and on God's mercy. And this is a long service. In our church, we actually break it up over four days because... We're not that hardcore, but it's it's drawing copiously from scripture. And it's a really good meditation, a good preparation before you finally start Lent and and really start the, that process. Hmm. Well, you know, I've been thinking about what to what to give up for Lent. Uh, my my every year joke is I you're supposed to give up something that you really enjoy. And so I try to give up going to church. <laughs> but as a future priest, I don't think that's probably the right way of doing it. Um hmm. But I think a combination of both giving up and starting something new. And so I'm thinking quite seriously about deleting all the news apps on my phone um, because there's not much good news in the news. (laughs) And even with the change of administration, it seems as though both sides are just committed committed to inflaming the other. And so what I'm going to replace the news with, um, I was given years ago uh, by a, a dear friend, a priest in Pontevedra, uh, the Liber Psalmorum, it's the book of Psalms in Latin, 
and it's the also the Coverdale um, translation of the of the Psalter. Uh, Coverdale, Miles Coverdale was the translator in the original Book of Common Prayer. Mm. So you have the Latin on one side, and then the Coverdale on the other side. And having done a minor in Latin, I'm going to try to uh, to brush up on my Latin. Maybe read the Psalm portion uh, every day in the Book of Common Prayer. If you read the Psalms morning and evening that are appointed, you get through the Psalter uh, in a month. So I'll do that. And then Malcolm Geit has got a brand new book called David's Crown. Yes, I saw. Excellent name. Excellent name. <laughs> well, and a corona, um, I come to find out, the, the last line of the previous poem becomes the first line of the next poem. So yeah. Lewis did a corona, or I'm sorry, Malcolm did a corona for his Stations of the Cross poems, which are gut-wrenching and, and marvelous. Uh, but I think that I'm going to try and maybe turn off the some of the video, turn off the news, um, and then spend some time in the Psalms because there's enough good news and bad in there uh, <laughs> to suit me for the 40 days. That's some good suggestions. I, I haven't really sat down with my priest yet to talk about Lent, but going to have to do that soon. Oh, one more thing before we begin. Yeah. I've had a couple more people reach out to me asking about show notes. So if anyone's listening, our show notes, they're actually on my blog in terms of the quotations and all of the links to stuff. And that's on restlesspilgrim.net. So if you just go to the blog, you'll be able to just search it for the episode number. One day, there will be one website to rule them all. We will have <laughs> everything in one place. Matt and I have been talking about it. We're planning on trying to do that at the end of this season. So until then, if you just be patient and just find the stuff on restlesspilgrim.net. Fantastic. But with that, let's let's get on. We're about the 10-minute mark. In today's letter, Screwtape is trying to find a wife for the patient. Hmm. And therefore, the song of the week came from my wife's favorite musical, Fiddle on the Roof. <sighs> Listeners, can you guess what it is? That's right, it's Matchmaker. And the lyrics are, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, find me a find, catch me a catch. Matchmaker, matchmaker, look through your book and find me a perfect match. Yes. This is a lovely, lovely song. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there were some some contenders to it. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I thought of Gold Digger by Kanye West. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> uh, one other suggestion I received was Stacy's Mum by Fountains of Wayne, who yeah. I'd never heard of before. Oh, you hadn't heard Stacy's Mum? No. Oh, no. my goodness. Yeah. And another one that I came up with, and this was actually going to be the title before I thought of Matchmaker, Devil Woman by Cliff Richard. Yeah. And I've got a feeling he didn't really make it over here. No, actually, um, I remember that song growing up. I think it must have been uh, 80s. Uh, but mm -hmm. I listened to it again today in pre preparation for the show. And yeah, I knew every word. And so, although Cliff Richard never really kind of hit here as he did uh, as he did over the in the UK, but uh, given the current state of of gender relations, I think we're probably uh, probably a wise decision <laughs> not to call this one <laughs> "Devil Woman." Exactly, I chose a, one of my wife's favorite songs. Much smarter, absolutely. Uh, what's today's quote of the week? Ah, uh, the quotation from Letter Twenty is this. It is the business of these great masters to produce in every age a general misdirection of what may be called sexual taste. This they do by working through the small circle of popular artists, dressmakers, actresses, and advertisers who determine the fashionable type. We might add uh, social media influencers to that. The aim 
Screwtape says, is to guide each sex away from those members of the other with whom spiritually helpful, happy, and fertile marriages are most likely. Wonderful. <laughs> and the drink of the week? Well, you and I decided to drink a little Ardbeg today. It is really nice, really nice scotch. <laughs> so I, uh, I have been away from my scotches, and Matt <laughs> sent me, uh, sent us a little sampler at the beginning of the season, and I packed that into my suitcases down in Florida. But I've got my big bottles, um, <laughs> and I was going to get, go for the Lagavulin 16, and I saw this lovely Ardbeg. Um, mine is an On Oa. It's a blended scotch, um, and uh, this is what the bottle says. Like the peninsula that shared its name, Ardbeg on Oa is particularly rounded, much like myself. Uh, <laughs> As personality or physique? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> due in no small part to the time spent in the gathering vat. Here we marry together whiskey from several different casks, including new charred oak, PX sherry, and first fill bourbon. Here they become fully familiar with each other, and I intend to become fully familiar with this scotch. <laughs> and then the one note that I had from now that we all have the same book, we're all on the seventh edition of the Michael Jackson Complete Guide to Scotch. And uh, it says that um, Ardbeg in general is earthy, very peaty, smoky, salty, robust, and calls it a bedtime malt. That might be true, but I think it can be had at any time. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. My friend said, here's some more of that mud water that you like so much. <laughs> uh, so I'm also drinking that, but I'm also having a cup of tea in my With Great Beard Comes Great Responsibility mug. <laughs> Why will become clearer as we unpack this letter. Well, and I'm having some PG tips with a bit of milk in my National Gallery uh, mug, uh, Sunflowers mug from our trip to the UK in 2017. Lovely. And we're also going to be toasting one of our Gold Level supporters, which in this case is our friend, Dr. Stephen Beebe. Oh, Stephen A. Beebe, uh, author of C.S. Lewis and the Craft of Communication, discoverer of a chapter on, of, of a book on Lewis with Lewis and Tolkien on communication, a dear friend, wonderful collector, and a, and a generous man. So uh, let's raise our glasses to dear Stephen Beebe. Cheers. Cheers. Mm, smoky goodness. Mm, yes, nicely rounded too. All right, I'm going to try one drop of water in here. Okay, well, while you try that, I'm going to read the chapter summary. Okay. This is Letter 20, which was first published in The Guardian on the 12th of September, 1941. Wormwood has overplayed his hand, and God has brought his direct attacks on chastity to an end, demonstrating to the patient that spiritual attacks don't last forever. Screwtape's plan is now for a desirable marriage, and reminds Wormwood that he's waiting for his report on potential wives in the patient's neighborhood. Screwtape explains that more senior demons have already set about determining the ephemeral fashion of the week, which will help bring about disastrous marriages. In particular, he speaks about how falsified images can be used to discourage all those involved with impossible standards. He concludes with a discussion about terrestrial and infernal Venus. Dun, da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> How did the water help? Was it good? The water was wonderful. It really opened it up. Now, the last couple of times I tried it, it didn't do much, but um, but here I think it makes it more robust. I think it just missed you. It was trying extra hard to be nice. 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's lovely. Well, let's kick things off. In recent letters, Scootape has been speaking about love and sex and marriage. And in this letter, it transpires that while these letters were being exchanged, Wormwood had been really pushing very hard on the patient's unchastity. But we find out in today's letter that this has been brought to an end. Screwtape writes this. I note with great displeasure that the enemy has, for the time being, put a forcible end to your direct attacks on your patient's chastity. You ought to have known that he always does in the end, and you ought to have stopped before you reached that stage. Hmm. Now, Andrew, what do you think he means here? What does it mean that God stepped in and stopped these direct attacks? Well, I'm so interested in that, and I'm also interested in uh, the advice that that Wormwood should have stopped attacking before he noticed the enemy stepping in. So God is always going to end temptation. God is always going to protect us from ourselves. The enemy, though, is going to get away with as much as he can. And so I think that uh, this book is such a uh, such a joy in that it shows us really an anatomy of temptation from somebody, I think, who had really looked carefully at his own temptation and how temptation lasts. And one of the enduring pieces of wisdom I get from Screwtape is that the enemy will try something, and as soon as either we develop a resistance or God steps in, he's going to drop it and then start attacking somewhere else. Usually, though, I find myself still defending or succumbing to a temptation after the enemy has stopped attacking me there, and that just leaves me open for a blindside from another another angle. It's it's almost like a boxer where he's mm. always trying to get into whatever defense uh, we are not currently making. So I think here the enemy, the Lord, uh, kind of steps in and shows his patient that he is succumbing to temptation, shows him that the enemy is at work. If I can really see that it's the devil acting upon me, I'm more likely to be spiritually proactive and resisting. Um, and so that's, I think, where Screwtape's where, where advice is really effective. The devil doesn't want us to be aware that he's tempting us and that the Lord is stepping in. He wants us to think that it's all our own affair. Part of me also wondered if there was an element of the patient realizing, or at least reaching the point where he was starting to run out of his own resources, that the attacks had been so relentless that the patient had, in the words of Lewis, thrown up the sponge and was now calling on HQ for help. Uh, that's, of course, what to do, to always kind of seek his seek his help, give us this day our daily bread. Um, but I, I tend to try and, and either ignore the fact that it's sin or try to defend it on my own steam, and that steam kind of runs out before I think it does. Yeah. And I actually find this comment by Screwtape really quite encouraging and, and puts me in mind of the parts of the Bible where it speaks about temptation coming to an end. Mm -hmm. uh, the famous one being 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul writes, No trial has come to you but what is human. God is faithful and will not let you be tried beyond your strength. But with the trial, he will also provide a way out so that you'll be able to bear it. Another translation says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Right. And so these temptations, these aren't new. And God always, always provides a means of escape. Sometimes one of the tricks I fall for is just to go, oh, well, I'm so far into this sin that I should just give <laughs> myself over to it or take one further step that way. Um, and that's, of course, a step into falsehood. Yeah. We need a little bit of James 4 where he says, submit or humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Absolutely. 
Now, the fact that these attacks have been stopped is a double blow for Wormwood, because not only can the patient no longer be tempted to unchastity like he was before, the end of the temptation has taught the patient that these temptations don't last forever. And this is a real problem, because Screwtape says that their best weapon is to foster the belief in humans that there is no hope of getting rid of them except by yielding. Mm-hmm. And of course, this reminds me of the Red Lizard in Lewis's best book, The Great Divorce. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, you need to put the proper preface in what I mistakenly believe is Lewis's best book. (laughs) No, I hear you. But in that book, the ghost with the Red Lizard, and the Red Lizard is lustful temptation, he really does seem to think that it's something he's never going to be able to get rid of. And the best that he can hope for is management, Mm -hmm. not not letting the, the, the lizard cause too many problems. Yeah, and then uh, he tries to kind of fob it off. Oh, he's asleep now. Oh, it's really not that bad. We really tend to lie to ourselves about temptation. And I think that part of what the enemy strategy is to to kind of keep us blind to how frequently temptation is there for us and how high the stakes are. And in, in Mere Christianity, he talks about uh, the a battle today, um, winning a battle today, Gaining a hill perhaps may prove uh, particularly effective in a battle in, in days to come. The stakes are high, and it matters whether or not we, we resist temptation and try to, try to refuse. Now, I want to ask you about what seemed to me sort of like a throwaway line at the end of this section. Mm-hmm. Screwtape asks, I suppose you've tried persuading him that chastity is unhealthy. <laughs> now, why does Screwtape say this? Because he says that God has now stepped in. And so why is he trying to beat that dead horse? Or is it just screw tape parroting a very common argument against chastity? I think as I was reading this letter, I realized that sometimes what happens when I have success over a particular sin is I think that that's a done deal. I think that that's, um, uh, that's a settled situation. Um, but those temptations are going to come back around. I think that even in giving up the ground, uh, there's that one last parting shot that's going to make us perhaps more vulnerable to it uh, in the future. And this thought that it's unhealthy to be chased, it's unhealthy, it's unnatural to adopt God's position on sexuality. I mean, that's all the rage both in the 1940s and in centuries past and in our own current day. And so I think that the enemy kind of wants that throwaway line, that thought in our head that I'm being extraordinary, I'm being supernatural. This really isn't, you know, this is this is exceptional that I'm doing this. No, the exception should be the temptation to lust mm. rather than the the chastity. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded again of of mere Christianity. And that marvelous passage where Lewis uh, says, we grow up surrounded by propaganda in favor of unchastity. There are people who want to keep our sex instinct inflamed in order to make money out of us. And we're recording this on the day of Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) So (laughs) I imagine that there will be a little of that uh, on those commercials. Because of course, Lewis goes on, a man with an obsession is a man who has very little sales resistance. God knows our situation. He will not judge us as if we had no difficulties to overcome. What matters is the sincerity and perseverance of our will to overcome them. And to me, that idea that somebody is going to make money on my indulgence of unchastity 
kind of also peels back the veneer and shows us screw tape at work. I mean, some of the kind of sexual propaganda that surrounds us in our age that has never before surrounded people. We have never had this this many images of sexuality bombarding us. I mean, actual images uh, as we do in our current day for the last 50 or 100 years. Somebody's making money from that. And just looking at the, the, the financial aspect of that is enough for us to say, oh, screw tape is at work making somebody uh, covetous and greedy by making other people you know, lustful and, and tempted to fornication. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about images a little bit later in this letter. But returning to the letter, since direct attacks on Chastia failed, Screwtape refocuses their efforts in the area of Eros. And he impatiently reminds Wormwood that in his previous letter, he had asked for a report about the young women in the patient's neighborhood. I should like it at once. For if we can't use his sexuality to make him unchaste, we must try to use it for the promotion of a desirable marriage. <laughs> now, what do you think in Screwtape's mind is a desirable marriage? On rereading this, I think that Lewis would probably have adopted a different tone if he had written Screwtape after he was married than before. Um, this is about, you know, what, 20, 25 years before he got married. Mm -hmm. But a desirable marriage... Uh, if you think about it, arranged marriage was the custom in most of Western Europe for most of our history. You're in a small village. There aren't a whole lot of potential marriage partners. You as a, 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 as a teenager, as a young person, are, are not as wise as the village elders and your parents. Um, and they have some say. And so a marriage based on love or in our day, certainly, um, it's, it's digressed to a marriage based on physical desire or lust. Uh, these are often the primary reasons for marriage, and that, I think, contributes to the, the reasons why so many marriages fail. Um, so I think that what Screwtape wants is a marriage based on shifting sand rather than based on not only physical attraction, which I certainly believe is important, but also based on, uh, is this person well-suited to me? Are we of a similar uh, temperament enough to get along? Are our values the same? And so Screwtape, I think, wants to keep our eyes on the surface rather than on the depth. And even the best and healthiest marriage, um, sexuality is only a fraction and sometimes a relatively small fraction of all that goes into um, making two people into one, uh, one flesh. I think I would give a slightly shorter answer. A desirable <laughs> marriage in Screwtape's eyes is anything that takes the patient away from the Lord, away from heaven. Yes. Because while I agree with everything that you just said, I've still known marriages where people didn't seem brilliantly compatible to my eyes. They seemed very different sorts of people. Mm -hmm. But there was something in that relationship that seemed to work for that couple in terms of drawing them closer. Let's say one of them is overly intellectual, one of them is overly emotional. Well, actually, together, they drew each other on in their faith in different ways, a way that wasn't natural to themselves. So those things can be useful. But as we've seen with Screwtape, letter after letter, he doesn't actually really care about the details. For him, it's always down to the bottom line. 
Absolutely. Well, and The Four Loves is so brilliant where he shows that the three natural loves, including Eros, Venus, romance, sexual love, those all need to be supplemented and supported by charity, caritas, selfless love, divine love. And I'm back to my old theme again. But uh, a desirable marriage in Screwtape's eyes is one that makes me focus on myself. And a desirable marriage in the enemy's eyes, in the Lord's eyes, is one that makes me focus on my partner and makes me focus on the Lord, obviously in reverse order. So a marriage that takes me out of myself and more loving towards God and more loving towards my partner, that's the kind of marriage the Lord has, has in mind for us. Excellent. Is that a better, shorter, a better shorter answer? I like that. That's good. <laughs> Now, Screwtape says that he'll give his nephew a hint of the type of woman to which the patient should be directed if they're going to go down this route of sending him towards love and marriage. He says that much of this has actually been decided for them by their superiors. He t- speaks about spirits far deeper down in the lower archy than you or I. <laughs> and he goes on to explain what these senior demons have already decided for them. And this was our quote of the week. It is the business of these great masters to produce in every age a general misdirection of what may be called sexual taste. This they do by working through the small circle of popular artists, dressmakers, actresses, and advertisers who determine the fashionable type. The aim is to guide each sex away from those members of the other with whom spiritually helpful, happy, and fertile marriages are most likely. What do you make of this, Andrew? What is Screwtape saying happens here, and why does he think it's such a good idea on hell's part. Well, let me come at it sideways. No matter who you marry, it's a very exclusive proposition because I will always be saying no to every other woman in the world and yes to only one woman who can never uh, match all of the different stereotypes and, 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 and ideals that the world pushes on us. Um, it's this kind of exclusive focus on one rather than the many. And I think that what Screwtape is, it wants us to go for is a fundamental sense of dissatisfaction with the other, which in some ways is a very self-centeredness. It's, it's trying to see myself. In Joy's copy of the second best book, uh, in her <laughs> copy that Steve Beebe actually owns of The Great Divorce, Lewis says something to the effect of, there are three images that I must continually uh, reject in exchange for a better, my image of myself, my image of my neighbor, and my image of God. And so I need to exchange for my image of what I think my wife should be or what the world says my wife should be. And what I should replace that image with is the image of who she actually is. Amen. Right. And I think that you probably have a little experience with this. And let's hope that our wives do the same thing for us. (laughs) (laughs) And what's brilliant about the strategy here is they make good use of fashions Mm -hmm. because fashions are wonderful because you can set a ridiculous standard and also you can keep changing it every few years, Mm -hmm. which means that if you married the uh, the, the person who fulfilled the fashion of the time, well, that's not always going to be the fashion. Yeah. There's no perfect body type. You get access to one body, and that's the body of your spouse, and that's the person that you delight in, physically and emotionally and all the rest. But the world never tells you that. And because, you know, great solid marriages that are fundamentally uh, based on charity and self-sacrifice, those don't make good newsprint. Those don't make good Instagram posts um, or or movies of the week. Um, Hallmark consumers. Movies. Right. 
Right. They don't sell very well. What happens to the exercise and diet and clothing and all of these other industries if if a society in general understands that, hey, your body's great, be healthy and live a good life and that's about it? No, no, no. It's much easier to drive those industries if you now have a new standard and one that changes every few years. Well, and here's where Lewis and his focus on desire, joy, unfulfilled longing um, kind of really understands the spirit of the age. And I think that the enemy fundamentally wants us to be unsatisfied uh, in everything. And God wants us, I think, to be satisfied, to give thanks in all circumstances, and to realize that this is a day that the Lord has made, and I can rejoice and be glad in it. To rejoice in the Lord always, and again to rejoice. To be fundamentally satisfied, like St. Paul said, I know how to abase and how to abound. And to realize that what I have, little or great, whether it meets God, uh, the society's standards or not, what I have is good enough for me. And for many, many, many years, and this is a great struggle for me, that satisfaction had to be in being single. And there's not a lot of ease in being satisfied in being single in the way that the world is today. Um, I think that fundamentally the world and consumerism wants us to be fundamentally dissatisfied. And what God wants uh, is for us to be satisfied in whatever we find in our hands. And that dissatisfaction is propagated through, today we'd call them influences, as yes. you mentioned. And Screwtape speaks about how the devils have nurtured different fashions throughout history both with respect to men and women. And with regards to tastes of women, so what a woman looks for in a man, he says that they've made sec traditionally made secondary characteristics of men, such as a beard, to be widely disagreeable. Hmm. And I'm wondering oh, what you think about this, Andrew. Does this mean that if anyone dislikes your facial hair, that you can reliably inform them that this person is under the influence of the devil? In my considered theological opinion... Yes, of course. <laughs> Having worn a beard for all of my adult life, um, I, I'm not sure. And, and I think that maybe Lewis's opinion might have changed. You know, he actually, I think he had chicken pox or something, and he grew a beard for a number of weeks. Um, and I wish that there had been pictures of it. It's hard for me to imagine. <laughs> but I imagine that if Joy had said, I find you much more attractive in a beard, that Lewis would have gotten comfortable with one. Yes, I think he probably would have. <laughs> and actually, if I may have a brief diversion, I want to sure. share a few quotations because as listeners know, I'm an avid reader of the early church fathers who were the Christian writers in the first few centuries of the church. And they had some truly epic quotations when it came to facial hair. <laughs> and I want to share them because from time to time I will grow a beard. And I'll, I'll put a link to some of these in the show notes, but I just wanted to read two of them. The first one is from the fifth century from St. Augustine. When he's writing about Psalm 133, he comments that the beard signifies the courageous, the beard distinguishes the grown men, the earnest, the active, the vigorous. <laughs> and a century before, Lactantius, he had written, the nature of the beard contributes to the beauty of masculineness and strength. <laughs> Does that sound about right, Andrew? It does. You know, my favorite uh, late church father, John Steinbeck, um, uh, not a churchman necessarily and not a father. Um, uh, but he said that, uh, fundamentally, I can't remember the exact quote, but he says that uh, he, as a man, wears a beard not to assert his virility or to hide a weak chin, but because he is a man and he can. And uh, that was enough to convince me I've always felt more comfortable in a beard. So that's why you're drinking from your beard uh, teacup today, yes? Exactly. <laughs> 
And now, I want to know what you think about what Screwtape says regarding this a little bit more seriously in terms of he says that this triumph over beards, taking the secondary characteristics of men and elevating them, he says there's more to that than you might suppose. Hmm. Which is quite enigmatic. What do you think Screwtape's hinting at? I haven't fully kind of thought through or read through this, but it, there's also a note in that second best book, uh, The Great Divorce, where there's that giggling couple and you can't really tell uh, which is androgynous. The, you yeah. can't tell who's the man, who's the girl. Yeah. And so that seems to be something that Lewis is kind of on about. Um, to extend it further, Joy Davidman, although in her own right, a very handsome woman, uh, a very attractive woman, was not what you consider kind of Hollywood movie beautiful, especially in those days. And then in the, I think it's in the late 50s, in a letter to Dorothy Sayers, Lewis says that he likes people that aren't particularly masculine or, or particularly feminine. He likes people that are just people. And so I think that sometimes if these kind of secondary characteristics pull us away from the the, the real essence of the person, uh, these are maybe not necessarily what what excites Lewis the most. I think the key word in this section for me is secondary. Mm -hmm. Things that are secondary are being elevated to being primary. Well, that reminds me of an essay, doesn't it? It does remind me of an essay. <laughs> and it's it's one of those that's so incredibly important uh, to, to Lewis. Uh, if your reader, if our listeners haven't read First and Second Things, um, this is really, uh, really a fundamental essay in Lewis. And uh, his basic argument is um, the enemy always wants us to confuse second things for first things um, and to get our priorities wrong. Uh, and so I think that this is part of uh, part of that essay. And particularly when you're pursuing a spouse and looking for a spouse, that's the best time for screw tape to confuse you and not to put the first things first, to elevate secondary matters to be primary. David, that's a brilliant point. That's a really true and helpful point. I mean, I had my list of what I wanted in a wife, but what should be on the top of the list almost to the exclusion of anything is do I want somebody who is willing to love me unconditionally? Um, mm -hmm. And everything else can kind of fade into the distance. And then I, th I think that's why arranged marriages in Christian Europe um, for hundreds and hundreds of years, that's why that worked, because you started out with this kind of promise of fidelity. You started out in agape, unconditional love, and then hopefully... Um, you know, the, the romantic love grew. And you see this actually in, in, uh, in Fiddler on the Roof, that wonderful <laughs> passage, do you love me? Well, do I love you? I've done all of these things. Well, I guess I love you. They have fallen in love after having decided to love, uh, which in some ways is, I think, a very helpful way to approach a marriage. A wonderful way to bring it back to the song of the week. Yes. Okay, so we spoke about female tastes, and now we're going to talk about male tastes. Because Uncle Screwtape, he seems to indicate that while they've done some work on cultivating the tastes of women with regards to men, their real triumph seems to be regarding the tastes of men. Hmm. And anyone who's ever hung out with a bunch of dudes will probably agree. <laughs> he notes something also rather obvious, that masculine tastes have varied a good deal over time. You only have to look into art history to notice this. If you go back and contrast the voluptuous Rubenesque women and the 1960s supermodel who was aptly named Twiggy, you'll see that these Rubenesque women and Twiggy are rather different. 
And Screwtape, he gets into a little bit of boasting here. He says, At one time we have directed men to the statuesque and aristocratic type of beauty, mixing men's vanity with their desires and encouraging the race to breed chiefly from the most arrogant and prodigal women. At another, we have selected an exaggeratedly feminine type, faint and languishing, so that folly and cowardice and all the general falseness and littleness of mind which go with them shall be at a premium. I could see how some people could read this and actually get quite insulted. <laughs> Certainly. It's like, this is this what Lewis thinks of men? What, what do you make of all of this? You know, I think it goes back to a point that we have been kind of touching on before, um, and it's a distinction that Lewis makes uh, much later in experimenting criticism uh, about how we read a book. Do we read a book to use it for our own enjoyment, or do we read a book to receive it to take another point of view? Um, a quote that I, I, I'm certain I've, I've mentioned here many times, um, Lewis says, I must see with other eyes. My own eyes are not enough for me. And so he valued a book in that it took him out of himself. And of course, this will sound like a theme that I bring up all the time. Um, what Screwtape wants us to do is fashion a woman after my own taste rather than receive the woman who she is. And it becomes kind of selfish idolatry rather than unselfish charity. Um, and I think that he constantly wants me to be selfish and idolatrous, to have this image and to, only, and to insist that my image of who I want my wife to be or what I want in a, in a spouse, he wants me to exchange my selfish desire um, for what God would really have me do, uh, this kind of willingness to receive with gladness. And uh, again, it's do I focus inward or do I turn outward towards the other? And I think that that's kind of what's, what's going on here. The word that jumped out at me when I read this section was vanity. Yes. He speaks about men's vanity again. Mm -hmm. And I've heard all the criticisms which have been leveled against Lewis at one time or another. And Lewis might have thought that women were more prone to some faults, but he also thought the same was true for men. And the chief thing that I've been noticing recently is he, he, see, he notices that men are, are really prone to vanity. And I, I, I think you could actually mine this section considerably for looking at how, how Lewis views the sexes. But I think with regards to this vanity, it's, it's all about who is seen on my arm, mm -hmm. making sure that I have the right woman seen on my arm, mm -hmm. which circles back to the, what you said about objectifying and using something. It's, it's for the benefit that it gives me not because this is the person that I love. It's always helpful to keep in mind um, Mere Christianity, Book 3, Chapter 8, that the great sin is pride, right? And I've been circling around it all episode, and I'm always talking about it. It's this vanity is, does this woman reflect well on me? But Lewis also was, uh, you know, an expert in Latin, and vanitas means emptiness, and so I think what he wants is for me to focus on me, not the other, and to focus on the emptiness rather than something that is really substantial, right? And it, it, it comes back once again to Weight of Glory, where it says, apart from, from the blessed Eucharist, your neighbor is the holiest object pre presented to your senses. And so... Um, and, and elsewhere in Screwtape, he says he wants us to be focused either on God, 
um, the present, which is eternity, which is God, or the present, which is when I can when I can do anything good. The Lord wants us to focus on Him or how to love the other, and the enemy wants me to focus on the emptiness of whatever will reflect well on me. And Screwtape comments on the fashion that they've been pushing at the moment uh, during this current era, which he calls the age of jazz, which just sounds way cooler than I think it really was. Uh, (laughs) He says, we now teach men to like women whose bodies are scarcely distinguishable from those of boys. And he notes that there's a real advantage to this particular kind of fashion. He says, this kind of beauty is the most fleeting, and it makes it much easier to nurture the female's fear of aging because it's fleeting and even render her less able or less willing to have children. Basically, you're taking something that would be otherwise fruitful and making it as barren as you possibly can. I think that this idea to keep women bound in fear and, you know, in terror of changing, in terror of aging, um, in terror of a gray hair, or in terror of what nature does to all of our bodies. I Once again, I think that what the enemy wants to, us to do is to exchange an idol, uh, an empty, vain, and impossible image for what's actually happening. And speaking of images, this is what Screwtape then goes on to say, that one of the tools that's been really useful to them has been what he calls the apparent nude. Uh, images that are put before everybody's eyes as almost as a form of advertising to reinforce the current fashion. And again, I, I every time I read Lewis, I have to keep reminding myself the era that he was writing in, it wasn't now. Because Screwtape yeah. delights when he notes the falsity of these images. He says, it's all fake, of course. The figures in the popular art are falsely drawn. The real women in bathing suits or tights are actually pinched in and propped up to make appear firmer and more slender and more boyish than nature allows a full-grown woman to be. And the same could be said. I mean, this is an era before airbrushing and plastic surgery, yeah. right? And he elsewhere, Lewis elsewhere talks about wanting to race on to the most foolish part of, of one's life and remain there as long as possible. <laughs> um, what he, wa- he wants us to exchange the, the, what's actually there for the image that I have. And it's this kind of fundamentally, fundamental turning towards self instead of away from self and towards the actual other which is where I think the real glory lies. And Screwtape wants to make it as impossible as possible. (laughs) Yes. He describes it as making the role of the I in sexuality more and more important, and at the same time making its demands more and more impossible. Absolutely. What follows, you can easily forecast. (laughs) Yes. And that was before the internet and all the dangers and, and, and terrors and temptations that are out there. There's this temptation to, to kind of idealize what the body should be. And I know it's shallow, but uh, when I think about these things, I always think about Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, two objectively beautiful people. And they were married to each other, and yet they got tired of each other. Certainly, it must be more than looks. There must be something much more. And in fact, true love, um, all of the loves, are the loves that most imitate Christ's love, which is a kenosis love, a love of emptying, and a love that seeks and serves the other. And so I don't know what happened in their marriage, but if if a marriage could be successful based on physical attractiveness, well, that to me seems to be a totem of of how that's certainly not true right it's it's like when you look at the lives of people that win the lottery if ever you wanted proof that money doesn't make you happy just look through that library of disaster 
<laughs> well, and Lewis has got a famous essay called We Have No Right to Happiness. And uh, that's the but, last one to be published before. Uh, it was actually published after his death, as I seem to recall. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, and godliness with contentment is great joy, St. Paul reminds us. So that concludes Hell's general strategy. Mm-hmm. And Screwtape ends this letter by explaining how Wormwood can work within the prescribed framework given to him from below. And he says that Wormwood has a choice regarding the kind of direction in which to send the patient's desires. He says that if you look very carefully into any human heart, that a man, he's haunted by at least two imaginary women, a terrestrial and an infernal Venus, and that his desires differ qualitatively according to its object. And so before we go any further on this last section, two things. I remember you saying that there was an interesting issue in the manuscript of this letter. So I want you to explain that. Sure. And also, can you just explain in broad terms, what is Lewis saying in this section? So um, a terrestrial and an infernal Venus. So um, remember in, in Four Loves, Lewis says the challenge for the critical mind is not to praise or dispraise, but define and describe. And I always find it hard to read Lewis until I stop and actually think about what he means by the actual words that he uses. So... Um, the human heart is uh, is haunted by two imaginary women, the terrestrial or earthly Venus and the infernal Venus. Infernal means hellish. And if you've read Four Loves, um, in his chapter on Eros, he distinguishes between Venus, which is sexuality, and Eros, which is romance. And of course, Venus is the mother of Eros in Greek mythology. So those are where those terms kind of come from. And he he talks about these imaginary women, the earthly Venus and the hellish Venus. With the infernal or hellish Venus, he's kind of talking about the eternal succubus, the temptress, the one who's always, you know, trying to seduce us and 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 win us away. And then with the terrestrial Venus, it's kind of this perfect example of the of the earthly beauty. You know, one one thinks of Faustus, uh, Marlowe's Faustus. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Talking about the beautiful Helen. As you mentioned, there's an interesting change in the manuscript. When Lewis first wrote this, and I've looked at the manuscript for Screwtape, he contrasted the celestial Venus with the infernal Venus. So the heavenly Venus versus the hellish Venus. But he he narrows the, the contrast to the earthly and the hellish rather than the heavenly Venus and the, the hellish Venus. I'm not quite sure why he did it, but I think that it's much more realistic to portray an earthly Venus rather than a, a heavenly one. I'm not sure how you would do that. I, I thought about that as well. And I think the reason he downgraded her from celestial to earthly is we would be less likely to confuse this with an idealized woman, mm-hmm. the, the perfect woman. Uh, think of the elves in Lord of the Rings, these flawless celestial creatures. I, I think Lewis doesn't want us to think think about that. I don't think he wants to contrast the hellish with that. He wants to contrast the hellish with the real. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that uh, we'd be remiss not to pay attention to the 
the the most true uh, portrayal of the terrestrial Venus that Lewis has, and that's Tinadril. That's the green lady in Paralandra, which he was writing right around this time. So we see a terrestrial or a planetary earthly, you know, uh, v- actual Venus in Tinadril, and she's a real woman. Um, you also see Sarah Smith of Gilder's Green a few year- mm. years later in that second best book, The Great Divorce. <laughs> um, and you would never notice her on Earth, but then she's surrounded in glory. And so I think that you have two really good examples of what a terrestrial Venus would look like. And a terrestrial Venus through the eyes of heaven will be truly celestial. Well, I think that if we're true to our celestial selves or terrestrial selves and allow our earthly selves to be changed, we will be like him and we will all become celestial as well. Wonderful. Heavenly and hellish creatures all over again. You know what? I think, though, this is also a Lewisian cop-out because the ter- the <laughs> celestial Venus might well be the woman in uh, w- crowned by 12 stars in the book of Revelation. And so I think that this may be Lewis maybe punting on the Blessed Virgin. <laughs> he did punt on her a few times. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll put that one... Uh, for another we'll put time. that one on a timeout for, <laughs> yes. for the time being. We will return to that subject at some point. So let's just briefly look at those two kinds of women and how he describes them. So the first of all is the terrestrial Venus. And Screwtape says that the patient has a healthy desire with regards to her, this earthly woman. And he says it's very amenable to heaven. He says it's a desire that's mixed with charity, readily obedient to marriage, coloured all through with that golden light of reverence and naturalness, which we detest. <laughs> But then we come to the infernal Venus, and he says that there's much more hope here. He says that the man desires brutally and desires to desire brutally. You get this idea of there's a, there's a twistedness in there that might be reminiscent of characters in some books that people say is Lewis's best book. Uh, and he goes on to explain to Wormwood that this kind of desire is very flexible. He says that it's generally best to draw the man away from marriage, uh, But he says it's useful even in marriage, since then the spouse can be treated like a slave or an idol or an accomplice. Mm -hmm. And while the love for the terrestrial woman can be twisted, he says it's the twistedness of the desire for the infernal woman, which is the attraction. He says the felt evil is what he wants. It is the tang in the flavor which he is after. In the face, it is visible animality or sulkiness or craft or cruelty, which he likes, and in the body, something quite different from what he ordinarily calls beauty, something he may even in a sane hour describe as ugliness, but which, by our art, can be made to play on the raw nerve of his private obsession. See, and this is, uh, this is again, and I think we, we do well to pay attention to the word brutal, which means of the brutes or animal-like. And so Lewis always kind of, as I, as I like to say, chucks us under the chin. He likes us to look at higher rather than lower. And so Screwtape wants us to look at the animality of the sex act and the animality, um, the animal nature of the attraction um, and keep us looking only towards that. And also, once again, it's how I can use this thing for my own benefit. In Experiment and Criticism, he talks about reading a book to use it, and um, once it's done, discarding it like um, a, a pack of cigarettes. 
Um, and then it, it's there in Experiment and Criticism that Lewis says, when a man says that he wants a woman, it's very much, it's usually very much a woman that he doesn't want. He wants that apparatus of a woman that will please him, usually sensually. And so he doesn't want the whole, the whole galaxy of emotion and personhood um, that makes up a woman. He just wants the physical act. And that's that kind of brutal thing that he wants us, that the screw tape wants us to turn to, to the exclusion of um, charity and and obedience and and reverence and na the naturalness that that held detests and that's why he says this infernal venus is best as a prostitute or a mistress here's faustus again when dr faustus uh, is given all the power in the world he wants to marry the most beautiful woman and mephistopheles says oh why you don't need to marry her you can just live with her he wants to keep her keep faustus away from the church from sacrament from promises, and he just wants uh, Faustus to use the woman rather than to make a vow to her. But Screwtape is actually even smarter than he is because Screwtape has a backup plan because the patient is a Christian. He says that you can still use this infernal woman because he says you can use all that propaganda about irresistible and all-excusing love and marry this woman instead. And he says... And that's going to result in a long-lasting and exquisite kind of unhappiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that's. Uh, I think that what Screwtape would want us to do is marry somebody who's really inappropriate to um, to all of who we are, not just physically, not just sexually, but to uh, Screwtape wants us to 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 marry for very few um, good considerations, and many of the kind of immediate and and fleshly easily satisfied um, senses. Because marriage is a long time. Marriage is a lifetime and was in that day and and should be uh, by God's design. And so wants us to, uh, God wants us, I think, to select somebody not only that satisfies that, that physical part of us, but that satisfies the soul part of us too. And that ultimately points us towards the kind of charity of which God demands and of which marriage can be a very good laboratory. Now, we've been speaking all this time about terrestrial and infernal Venus. And we've been speaking in terms of women. Is there a male equivalent? You mean besides you and me? Well, <laughs> I like to think of myself as celestial, but sure. <laughs> I think the same is true. And I think that the, the kind of inflaming of the animal desires and having them stay there and this idea of what sex should be and what sexy should be and how important sexy is um, uh, you certainly see that marketed towards women. And as we mentioned earlier in the show, um, if there's money to be made, uh, I think that you see that happening, happening as well. You see these images of men and how they should be. I think you're right. And it's very often easy to read Lewis when he picks a particular gender to focus on and assuming that he's A, speaking exclusively about that gender and B, that it isn't applicable elsewhere or that there would be a flip side to it. Mm-hmm. And since I've been reading The Silmarillion recently, I've actually just finished the story of Arathel. And she is this, uh, this beautiful elf who marries Aeol. And he's a real jerk. <laughs> and in the podcast I was listening to when they were talking about this guy, they described him as a bad boy. <laughs> and, and she seems to, in her story, she seems to keep seeking after these kinds of characters. Mm -hmm. And it made me wonder, it's like, is that an equivalent of an infernal Venus? But albeit tweaked because of the gender change mm -hmm. that maybe that she see she sees something in him that isn't great but maybe thinks that she can fix it 
the infernal Cupid. And and you see uh, Orwal kind of projecting that on Psyche. Oh, Psyche, you actually like it. And she thinks that Psyche's husband, Cupid, Eros, is actually lower than he is rather than, than higher than he is. And, and I love how Tolkien very often marries um, female elves with male uh, heroes, but it, but in so doing, it raises the the line. It increases the blood of Numenor, um, and so this it's kind of not miscegenation, but procegenation, where where this kind of marriage elevates the the nature of men. But it sounds like in the Silmarillion, we have a few clunkers along the way. <laughs> well, ale doesn't end well. I'll just say that. <laughs> well. Let's talk about unscrewing screw tape. Do you have any do's and don'ts in response to this letter? It's my same do and don't. Um, Do, um, especially when thinking about relationships between between men and women, romantic sexual relationships. Um, And especially, I mean, you and I are married, but Matt is not. And and we hope well for him. But um, if you are not married, do seek for someone who will not only satisfy your, your meet your attraction, but somebody who will make you take you out of yourself, make you better than yourself. If you are married, seek in your spouse ways to make them better than themselves, ways to to elevate them, to turn them towards Christ, and seek to to encourage those situations where your partner does the same for you. Yeah. Try and follow the more general trend in Tolkien's marriages. Marry up if you're a guy. <laughs> Absolutely. Another uh, another do I would say is do pay attention to where the money is, right? If something is being pitched to me, see who's making a dollar out of out of my choice, right? Pay attention to what uh, is at the other end of the click. Well, here's my little list. Do remember that the devil's attacks cannot last forever. Resistance is not futile. Mm-hmm. Star Trek reference there. <laughs> do not pay too much attention to fashions. They're just going to keep changing. Do not define yourself by society's praise or rely on it. Do remember the power of Photoshop. <laughs> do remember that beauty is fleeting. I wasn't quite sure about this next one. Do grow a beard? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> do not objectify others. Do remember that you are surrounded by people made in the image and likeness of God. Really, Screwtape's entire attack in his letter will fall to pieces if that one fact is kept front and center in your head. Hmm. And lastly, do choose your spouse wisely. Oh, so good. So good. I'd only add one more do, and it's one that I've I've mentioned as we've, and I'm so grateful for Screwtape and thinking about it. Do remember that the enemy will trade a lesser success for a greater failure, right? He will allow the patient to become chaste if chaste can, chastity can lead to pride, right? And so the enemy is always trying to find his way in. So let's be mindful of our adversary, the devil, who prowls about like a roaring lion, and let's continue to resist him. I think that's a good note to end on. We'd like to thank our top tier supporters, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. And please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And for those new listeners, we always appreciate it if you leave us a review on iTunes. And from time to time, we'll read some of them out and deal with some listener feedback. And merchandise is available on our website, pintsforjack.com. And I'm currently trying to source a new Pints for Jack coffee mug. Mm. It should be coming out soon. So please watch this space. 
Wonderful. Well, and I also want to shout out to our Patreon supporters again um, and the Slack channel. There's been such great discussion and uh, we owe so much to your faithful uh, enjoyment. Didn't we uh, just go over 600,000 downloads? No, I don't think we're quite that high, but we're, we're doing really well. I'll tell you what we are very close to doing. We are nearly at a thousand images on Instagram. Oh. So these are all of the authentic cited C.S. Lewis quotations. And so much of, uh, of that is due to our, our good friend, uh, Brittany White, who's done such a fantastic job. So cheers to all of them, too. And join us again next week, when next time we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>